Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And my name is Ethan Knight. This week we're back with number 62 on AFI's top 100 list of American films, and that's a little film called American Graffiti. American Graffiti. 1973 film, but certainly not set in 1973. No, sir. Ethan, I am just dying to hear a plot synopsis about this film from you. Uh, All right, well, get ready. Here we go. (laughs) American Graffiti is the story of a group of teenagers in 1962, Modesto, California. The cast includes... Kurt and Steve, high school graduates, leaving the next morning for college out east. John Milner, the local king of drag racing. Terry the Toad and Lori, Kurt's sister and Steve's girlfriend. Steve leaves his car with Terry while he and Lori go to the back-to-school sock hop. However, he suggests they see other people while he's away, which creates conflict between the two all night. Kurt, who has received a large scholarship from the Moose Lodge in town, debates whether or not he really wants to leave town for school. Milner is put on alert that a new kid in a 57 Chevy is looking to race him. Kurt comes across a beautiful woman in a white Thunderbird and becomes obsessed with meeting her. During the course of his search, he falls in with a greaser gang called the the Pharaohs, or as they say it, the Pharaohs. You want to be a Pharaoh? And is forced to commit petty crimes with them. Kurt finally heads to the radio station run by Wolfman Jack to send a message to the woman. Terry meets a girl named Debbie while cruising the strip, and though he passes off the car as his, the two have fun. They manage to get some booze, but the car is stolen. They eventually get the car back, and Debbie offers to go out with Terry again. Milner accidentally gets saddled with Carol, a sassy 12-year-old. Despite his initial embarrassment, he and Carol have a fun night, and he leaves her at home with his gear shift knob as a gift to remember him by. Steve and Lori eventually get into a fight, and she kicks him out of her car. Then she decides to ride with the new kid in the 57 Chevy, but is quiet and distant. Steve eventually finds out where she is, and Milner accepts the race challenge. As the sun comes up, the two hot rods begin a drag race, and the Chevy rolls into the ditch. Lori and the driver survive, but the car explodes. Steve professes his love and decides not to leave Lori. Meanwhile, the blonde woman with the T-Bird calls Kurt and asks if she can see him the following evening. He declines, having decided to go to school. The film ends with an epilogue revealing that Kurt becomes a writer, Steve stays in Modesto to sell insurance, Milner is killed by a drunk driver, and Terry is MIA in Vietnam. The end. I think it's also important to note that Steve is played by Ron Howard, or how he's credited in the film, Ronnie Howard. Ronnie Howard. And of course, Bob Falfa is... Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. We also have Kurt, played by Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus. And Susan Summers is the blonde lady in the T-Bird. Yes, and... What's her name that plays Lori? She was in Laverne and Shirley. I wasn't I familiar remember. with her uh, her work. Oh, she was in Laverne and Shirley. I don't remember her name. <laughs> She's an actress. She exists. She does other things. Ethan, this was evidently a very popular film. It's oh, yeah. also the 39th film on our list. So it's getting mm-hmm. up there in numbers, almost halfway to the top. Mm-hmm. And I don't see why. Really? Yeah, I didn't like this film. 
What? I thought it, you know, I had suspicions that you, you would like this because there's cars in it. And so that's usually your kryptonite. Oh, yeah. But Ooh, it's, it does it have cars, baby. My issue with this is that it feels like a bad version of Last Picture Show. A film that hmm. occupies 30 plus spaces beneath this film. Hmm. You know, I that assessment, I it, don't categorically disagree with. I think that it's a, a nice sort of uh, easily palatable version of Last Picture Show. I will absolutely go that far. I would say it's so easily palatable that everything that's worth palating is gone. <laughs> there are so many storylines in this film that appear to go nowhere, and then I just simply can't thematize. So, Ethan, why don't you help me out and give me some of your themes for this film? Well, the obvious theme is is coming of age. This is absolutely a coming of age story, though it does it in a lot of different roundabout ways. Milner is softened by a bratty 12-year-old and is proven not to be the, oh, I'm a cool guy, cool guy that he is. Uh, Steve realizes that his girlfriend is more important than college, which, you know, I don't know that that's a great, uh, (laughs) bit of advice. Um, let's see, Kurt realizes that he wants to go to college, right, instead of staying home with greasers, uh, and Terry the Toad, uh, I (laughs) I don't know that there's a lesson for him. Yeah, so I want to speak about a few of these because each of these things he pointed out I had some issue with. So John Milner being softened by this 12-year-old, which I didn't know she was supposed to be 12 in this film. It makes everything that occurs far more creepy and oh, disturbing. Oh, it's definitely, it is not nearly, uh, or it is, it, it is it is 10 times creepier than I remembered it. I have seen this movie many, many times. Uh, but we live in a current political climate in which it is his relationship with her is a little more uncomfortable than i remember a lot of these aspects of this film have to do with how uncomfortable i am with it in our, in light of our current political climate yeah carol even says when they get pulled up by the cops i'm going to tell them you raped me right. for no it's... reason and yeah then later she says well i'm not going to rape you and then he insinuates rape later just to as like a trick to make her go home. Yeah, that was not... It's all incredibly problematic. But leaving that aside, John Milner, let's say he does have a softening of the heart, which I prefer to the phrase, he's softened by this 12-year-old girl because <laughs> something just seems terrible about that. And he goes on and then immediately races Bob Falfa, which is Harrison Ford's character right afterward. Mm -hmm. Falfa and Steve's girlfriend, was it Lori is her name? Mm -hmm. Is nearly killed. And Falfa's car is destroyed in a fireball, which is a really a shame because it was a sweet car. And then Milner has this crisis of identity saying like, Bob had me. He would have beat me if he didn't crash. He's got this confrontation with mortality and his own, maybe disappearance into mediocrity or something yeah, like obscurity. that. But then Terry is just like, no, nah, man, you had him. You got him. And then John Milner says, okay, you're right. And then nothing changes about him after that fact. Well, 
first of all, I will say, I don't think he was being beaten. No, I don't think he was either, but that was his that was his opportunity for growth, I think. And then Terry just completely takes that away and says, no, you had him. And he's like, you're right. I had him. We got this. We're back on top. So it's like he fails to learn anything, any growth in that, yeah. in that phase. Yeah. So that's that's my issue with John. My issue with Kurt is that his resolution to go to college seems to be apropos of nothing. I'm not really understanding why his phone call with Susan Summers' character, who is unnamed, she's just Lady and T-Bird, why that galvanizes him for college. I just don't see what that has to do with everything he well, did. It, I mean, so it seems like this. It seems like Kurt's whole reason for going to college is to not become a pharaoh because he doesn't want to be put in that situation. And he's also done petty crime, and they've robbed the people who gave him a scholarship at the arcade, so yeah. he shouldn't show his face there. It just seems like there's no good reason for him to... He doesn't have any personal growth, it seems to me. I just can't see it. Well, I think at least with Kurt, there for me, what his transformation seems to be that like he realizes that the small town life is not for him. He's, he hangs out with those, with the pharaohs, um, and sees like the people at the, like the Moose Lodge people at the arcade. And I think he's at the end of the day, kind of disgusted by all that. And he sees Wolfman, who's really just a fat guy in a tiny radio station that sits there all night and plays tapes. Yeah. That seems so I, weird. So Wolfman's like this, almost prophetic figure this local celebrity they have all these myths made about him yeah and he's a real person he's that's right yeah wolfman jack is a real real individual in our world yeah who did that i mean those are all his those are real recordings of him um and he shows up as himself but yeah so i think that like all these things that uh kurt is um propping up on a pedestal about being at home are sort of undercut like it's all disillusioned like i think he realizes that riding around in cars with girls or riding around in cars looking for girls and you know the whole the whole scene i think is just sort of cut out from under him and he's like this is not this is awful I would agree that that's probably what's going on, but I see that far more in the Wolfman Jack scene because he realizes yeah. Wolfman Jack is not this mythical great person, but just a disc jockey that is eating a refrigerator full of popsicles. That, and he also disavows his identity there. He's trying to make it more mysterious. He's like, "Well, I got to relay it to the Wolfman, and then maybe he'll do it." And as he's walking out, he sees Wolfman talking in the Wolfman, whatever his basically like I don't know like comedy skit type. Yeah. prank phone call stuff so i think i can hey, see that me, Wolfman Jack. Hey. yeah precisely so i think hey, i can me, see that Wolfman Jack. wow that's audio. i'm gonna talk like this for the rest of the episode nope that's horrible <laughs> so i can see that being him realizing oh you know big fish small pond but the whole Susan Summer thing, I have no idea why that's even relevant to the plot. Well, he wants he wants a big, grand moment with a, with a woman, I guess, in town. And then he realizes that after hearing all these different stories about who she is, e- either she's 
um, some sort of sex worker or she's somebody's wife. Which we or, should get into later about the problematic nature of that representation of women. Right. We can talk about women in this film for a long time, and that's coming up. Um, but I think he wants that thing and then realizes that he's chasing nothing. Like, it's not – that isn't going to happen for him. That and, seems weird because he actually does – get her on the phone and so i think that would be more true what you're saying if he never hears from her and just sees it almost like a a ghost right this white t-bird then you could think like okay sure he's he can choose to chase this white rabbit right there's more imagery there or he can Mm -hmm. just live with the idea that whatever reality it actually is not going to be as good as he thinks but on the phone call she's like yeah i'll meet you and so i don't I don't see I just don't see how those two connect precisely in that moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that she there's just no it's for him it's the chase and then when he can catch her he realizes that it's not what he wants maybe, I don't know. That just but seems I like just keep... more like immaturity than him understanding some fundamental truth about himself. Right. Well, I just keep thinking about like all the interactions he has throughout the night cuz he runs into that that teacher is it like an english teacher or history teacher oh the sexual predator named mr wolf yes yes the sexual predator uh who's like who's named mr wolf that's so like uh yeah that was bad um and i had forgotten about that character uh but he runs into him and like the guy's like yeah hey i couldn't i you know i wasn't the uh the uh what does he say the whatever type the excitement type, or he couldn't handle. No, the not the excitement. No, it's the competitive. He's like, competitive I wasn't the competitive type. type, so I came back and uh, decided to teach high school. Which obviously he's coming back to like just continue to relive his glory days by flirting with women. I think he's we, doing not far women, more. girls, young girls. He's flirting with young girls, and it's. I think it's clearly implied that he is definitely sleeping with them. Yes, and he um, is doing this sexual. What is it? Sexual permissivity, where you are normalizing sexual talk or behavior or to right. make, and he's doing that in front of a bunch of girls at the high school dance and it's another i guess it's another instance of the big fish small pond thing so maybe maybe i understand the curtis thing better i just think it was weird to end it with the t- i just i just couldn't fit the t-bird piece into that puzzle yeah i i still have trouble with that and i don't know that i have a perfect answer for it either but i do think that like look i mean all the people kurt runs into in his thing like his old girlfriend who he like makes out with in the car but actually wants the t-bird lady and then the pharaohs pharaohs uh who you know just commit petty crimes the the two old men in the in this the snack stand uh you know i think everything that he's it's just not there's not really anything there you know what i mean yeah and that's what he's running into but i think his is probably the clearest arc of all of them i guess steve too sort of but yeah i want to talk about steve because terry the toad is a non-entity he is for comic relief and that seems to be just about it yep and steve played by old ronnie howard Ronnie Howard. Apparently everyone wants him, which is another issue with this film, is that these men, these boys who are graduated high school or moving on to college, are supposed to be sexually indispensable, where they, mm. like, every woman has to have them, or these girls, rather, have to have them. And it's just, there's just no reason to it. But Steve is saying, well, I'm going to go off to college. We should stay together. I have claimed you, effectively. But right. I also want to see other women. Really, I want to have sex with other women. 
someone right. points St- him out to that in the in the bathroom, and he's like, "Well, yeah." Right. See, this is the thing about Steve. Steve makes all sorts of terrible decisions throughout this film. First of all, do not give your four-year-old hot rod car to Terry the Toad. Bad decision. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) That makes no sense. Second of all, don't tell your girlfriend, let's see other people the day before you leave to college and then proceed to spend the night with her and try to fuck her in her own car pragmatically it seems like a bad decision ethically morally personally it seems like a horrific decision he just is making terrible terrible decisions i just i don't understand i think the thing with steve i think what we're supposed to understand with steve is that he feels invincible um, and then he spends the whole night realizing that he is not invincible and his girlfriend almost dies. And then he's like, oh, no, home is where the heart is. I'm not invincible. I don't want to lose what I have. So that seems like feel- his growth, right? That he's confronted with Lori's potential demise and that galvanizes him to stay home. And his and his loss of in general of Lori, which, again, is problematic because then all Lori is is some sort of like prize for him to either control or win or keep She's safe. She's basically or safe. territory to be held. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So he decides to stay home, even though beyond his sexual politics, which I think insinuate everything else in this film. So I, you know, maybe take this with a grain of salt. I think he has the best career plan in that. He lays out, look, I need to go out of town to go to this big college. He's talking about JC a lot, which I assume stands for junior college. Yeah. And he says, well, it's just not in this town the things that I need to be successful career-wise. So, great. And then he throws it all out the window. I don't know. So, in fact, maybe we can take this as a, a place to pivot because we are running incredibly long. <laughs> and this is entirely my fault, and I understand that. But let me take this to our pivotal scene because you already mentioned it. It's the one where he gets kicked out of Lori's car after trying to have sex with her in probably the most problematic scene when he says something like, I need something to remember you by. And she's like, well, I'm going to lay there. And he's like, well, why aren't you doing anything? He says, well, if you want it, then I guess you could take it. She's, she is resisting passively, which I don't want to make it sound like she's being passive aggressive. I think she is, she is using this weirdly dominant sexual, position that that steve is taking to make a stand and i so it's a very weird it's a strange moment but it is a strange moment and it is a moment of agency for her which is welcomed this far into the film uh because you're right she does pat well let's listen to it first and then we'll talk about it you know it doesn't make sense to leave home to look for home to give up a life to find a new life to say goodbye to friends you love just to find new friends. Wait a minute. Could you say that again? Something Kurt said. Mm. Figures. You must have talked to Zero off trying to get him to stay. Oh, no, Stephen. That's not true at all. I didn't say anything. Kurt just said at dinner tonight that he didn't see what the big hurry was. He thought that he ought to stick around and go to JC for a while and try and figure out what he wanted to do with his life. That sounds logical. Do you think so? Sure. I think Kurt's probably right for Kurt. Not for me, though. 
Lori, look at me. And you know what I want out of life. And it's just not in this town. I'm not going with you to the airport tomorrow. What's wrong? You're just sitting there. Well, you want to. Go ahead. Not like that. If you're not going to remember me for anything else, why don't you just go ahead? Oh, come on. You want it and you know it. Don't be so damn self-righteous with me. After all that stuff you told me about watching your brother. You're disgusting! Get out of my car! Get out! Lori! I told you never to mention that! Okay, so what I think, to pick up where you left off there, Ethan, what I think is very yeah. strange about this moment is that everything that she does, that power of agency that she takes, is completely undercut by the fact that Steve, Steve says, well, you know you want it, which is, A, deplorable. And then yeah, because he says all those things you told me about watching your brother, and oh, then she gets yeah. violently aggressive, shoves him out of the car, and says, I, never, I told you never to mention that, and then drives off. So we have the only moment she has to be an agent and take control of the situation through her sexual identity is completely undermined through deviant sexual identity. Yeah. Yes, it is. But I mean, but that, but her resistance to him is so interesting because she basically is going to lay there and let him do what he wants. And he's like, well, no, I don't want to just do that. And she's like, well, this is all I am. I mean, that I think is a smart moment because he's not going to, well, we'd like to think that he's not going to rape her, right? Uh, but she's like, well, this is all it. I mean, she, right, she's pointing that out to him, which I think is an interesting tactic, not a safe one. Do not do this, people in right. the world. <laughs> yeah, it's a literarily interesting tactic. Do not mistake that for right a personal plan. <laughs> no, do not do that in the real world. Um, but yeah, and and there's that whole thing about watching your brother. Yeah, so it's there. It, there is that deviancy that's that's built into theirs and i just I, the whole thing is icky it's just so icky. i have to ask a, an odd question maybe not odd, it's just a uncomfortable perhaps question when she, when he mentions watching your brother is she talking about masturbation or is she watching him have sex with other women i'm not sure it could i you know what oh, well this is the thing her brother is kurt yeah kurt's the brother and so i don't understand what that's supposed to mean what context she told Steve about this, what that was supposed to do, what is the point of it being in the film other than to yeah, it's a demean her sexual identity as a woman. Yeah, I don't know what's... That's, that is a very weird moment. And Although, nothing I comes mean, of it. Nothing comes of it at all afterward. No, no. It, I, it is just... That scene is a weird fucking scene. I don't... Ugh. Yeah, because that's the thing. So Kurt must be either masturbating and she's watched him somehow, or she's watched him have sex with women. But and but see, and Kurt doesn't seem like the kind of person who's not gonna you know like he's in that he just hops in the backseat of that car to start macking on that girl. 
Yeah, uh, not only he hops in the back seat and she's in the front seat, and he's like, "Come on back here." Basically, you know, you want it. And so again, there are these men who are sexually, obscenely sexually desirable. Everyone wants a piece to them, literally and figuratively. And it just doesn't. I don't. So Ethan, let's do this. Why don't we talk about our theses and move to our three questions? Because I think one of our three questions, if not more, is going to have a lot more discussion. But I think we kind of get the theses of the film out of the way. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I came up with small towns are devoid of any real progress. I'm thinking of movement towards goals, fulfillment of goals. So when you said this is a Bildungsroman or a coming-of-age tale, difficulty with it being only a single night, I think it's hard to, to see that in a large scale. But also, it seems like people are just going in circles. They are literally driving in circles yeah. around the town yeah. all night. And on top of that... All of the characters find or really invent reasons to stay in this cycle, this cyclical mm-hmm. town, but only Kurt breaks out. Yeah, Kurt gets out of there. Yeah, I it, I'd see this as a nostalgic coming-of-age film that looks back to try to look forward, and in the process it becomes this looping time capsule of bittersweet nostalgia for a rose-tinted past that isn't really real, Right, because it is about at the end. It's about getting out and looking for, and we literally look forward to what happens to the characters. Um, but like this vision of California is is not a real one. In the, you know what I mean. Like, Except for all the horrible sex stuff. I think all the gender and I don't know, just obscene sexuality. The depiction of sexuality in this, I think, is obscene. Not because there is any nudity or anything like that in the film. But just the mere fact that we are characterizing men and women in such a way that promotes sexual violence, which in today's culture, I think we maybe come to terms a little bit better with it now than maybe then. But I think it just like uncovers some of that stuff we hadn't seen until now, largely. Yeah, and I think that what this film really is, in a lot of ways, is a is a male fantasy of the past right like looking it's it's men looking back on the good old days uh when they were like you know big man on campus in high school you know what i mean and that is not necessarily a a good look it's full of like weird sexual shit it's full of weird dominance and this is a movie about men you know, the women are all ancillary characters <clears throat> or, uh, you know, vehicles in which to get what the men want. You know what I mean? Um, in fact, they're completely cut out of the ending. The credits with the mm-hmm. text box that tell the futures of the primary men characters are there, but the women are completely taken away. And in fact, yeah, we don't know about we don't know about Debbie. We don't know about Lori. Uh, Lori. We don't know about uh, what's her name in the car. Carol. Uh, Carol. All these people are completely excised from the ending. And in fact, someone pointed this out to George Lucas during the production. And he said, oh, we can't add those. It'd make the credits too long. And it's like, (laughs) bullshit, motherfucker. You, George Lucas. And it's, he's hurt me on all sorts of levels now. Well, pardon? I was saying that George Lucas has hurt me on all levels with the prequels and his sexual politics or what I take to be his sexual politics. 
Yeah, and you know, George Lucas says in interviews that the men in this film are all representations of him at different points in his life or inspired by representations of him at oh, different Oh great. Points in his so life. he's terrible. <laughs> yeah, so like it's a self-indulgent film already. And so to like say, "Oh, we don't have time for that." In a film that is just self-indulgence and his like nostalgic flashback to his time as a young man in California, like <sighs> It's not good. Although I will say that the cars are really fucking cool. So, Ethan, <laughs> why don't we turn to our three questions? Because I think we still have some loose ends to tie up. Yeah, we do. So, do we care about this film? Uh, I I think yes, and I have a reason why. Um, this film, I the feeling I get from this film is that it really is a big player in the 50s and 60s nostalgia movements that inspire things like happy days which shortly after this film comes out ronnie howard shows up in basically the same role in happy days uh you know the you everyone's been to these restaurants that are like 50 style 60 style diners that are you know and drive-ins and things like that um i think that this film is if not you know one of the catalysts of that because this is only 10 years it's 73 you know, we're not sh- that far out from the, the 60s and the 50s, right? Uh, and this is set in 62, so it's early, early 60s, right? Uh, this, I think, is like a... It's like the boom in the 90s right now where everyone's like, the 90s were so great! And we're, like, barely out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and there's all sorts of, like, 90s-inspired fashion and toys and all sorts of shit you can buy. Um, Clothes, you know, even? Yeah clothes it single-handedly has like revamped LaCroix as a thing right as this 90s nostalgia um because of the way the cans look right I think this is one of the things that really helps launch that into what it is you know it's a big a bit it's a it's nostalgia for the 50s and 60s and the as my girlfriend has pointed out like the 50s and 60s are not a place you really want to live unless you are a white straight man yeah like the men in this film also pretty much true for a lot of history unfortunately well yes but but you know what i mean but there's even with things like mad men and all these other shows um there is a lot of like oh the the 50s i mean this is make america great again right they're thinking about the 50s and 60s of course note that there are i think maybe two black people total in this film and they're like extras in the in the sock hop yeah um so again and there are no gay characters there are no other characters really of color i guess wolfman jack is maybe not white i don't i don't know um it's about white men it's a movie about white men and that's what 50s and 60s nostalgia is you know is like white people doing white people things in the 50s and 60s i agree with your assessment and that is why i say that this film is one that i do not care about because nostalgia sucks because especially when it's a bigoted and chauvinistic sexist accounting of a history a history as opposed to you know just history in general i'm not into it i do not support this film i was bored (laughs) and disgusted which are two feelings that are hard to be compatible but yeah damn it if george lucas did not find a way i i liked this film a lot more before but watching it now i really did feel a lot ickier 
and I just didn't feel good leaving this film. Yeah, in this film, I think there's a difference in feeling icky and the film wanting you to feel icky, and this film does not right. want you to feel icky. You just feel no. icky as a result of it laying out its nostalgia. So yeah. that's intensely problematic for me. And so our second question, what do we owe to this film? Well, we I mean, we've sort of answered this. I mean, I really think that we owe a lot of, you know, I mean, Happy Days comes out. Happy Days is, ba- you know, yeah. with literally Ron Howard in this in a, 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 practically the same role. Um, sorry, Ronnie Howard. Um, well, also the ending credit sequence where you have the text box appear next to the portraits of the characters. Mm-hmm. Apparently that was innovative for the time. So yeah. there's that, I guess. Yeah, and I also uh, read that this film was one of the first major films that had uh, really no score aside from popular music that does it in the background this which is, is a trend so that, that sucks too think of like suicide squad being this weird extended music video with no narrative and just ugh. yeah i mean and that's sort of what this is i mean this is it's got all of and I, now i will say i there are lots of things that i do like about the. i mean i love the music in this film i love the cars in this film i think visually it's great this narrative not very good at all not 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 great um, but as a visual and tonal or sonic piece, it is it's pretty cool, right? Um, as long as you don't listen to any of the characters talk or pay attention to anything that they're doing. I will also say that this film apparently popularized these production companies, giving people a lot of directorial free reign, these low-budget or lower-budget films, comparatively speaking. And then they would just decide, okay, great. And then they would, you know, run them after that point. So there was really little interference during those times. So it's almost like they're, I don't want to say the word indie films, but they were built without a lot of oversight. And then the production company came in and said, okay, now we will distribute it or whatever. So in the case of this film, it actually sat on a shelf for six months because whoever was, you know, actually producing it, whatever company that was said, this has no merit. And then they left it until it tested very, very well. And then they did it that way. So, you know, take that what you will. I think it says something very specific about the people who were tested and what they were interested in. But I think we've digressed enough. Let's turn to our third and final question. Does this film hold up? Uh, I think we've answered this pretty well. Visually and, and sonically, I think absolutely. Uh, in terms of the plot and what is okay and the kind of rose-tinted view of the early 60s that it paints for us, no. No, it, not at all. Yeah, it's entirely I mean, antithetical is... to our modern 2018 sex scandal, sexual assault, sexual aggression on, toward, against women. I think it's just makes it a deplorable thing to see today. Yeah, it's just not good. It's just not good good um and and it's hard to it's really hard to watch this film now and be like this is totally fine like you can't it's you i don't know that there are things you can really let go of when you watch this i mean if you're watching it with any sort of critical eye and you're in any way not thinking as a make america great again white man you know it's it's just hard it's just hard to enjoy this film in any way other than that you know 
I mean, I, I guess the attitude you have to take to watch this film and enjoy it is like, boys will be boys, which is not a good attitude to no, take in a, the world, you know? why we have all these problems today, in fact. Uh, yes, I mean, it, it absolutely is. So, yeah, I think that we... One final note that fits nowhere else in the podcast, but something I wanted to mention, is when there's a scene where Milner is stopped with Carol, I think it's by the cop, they're next to a movie theater, a poster on the wall behind them is a poster of Cabaret, which is the film oh. right before this one on AFI oh. Top 100. So conspiracy? You tell me. Definitely. Definitely conspiracy. Definitely conspiracy. Well, that's all we have for today. <laughs> that has been our thorough thrashing of George Lucas and his film <sighs> America Graffiti. We will I'm not be covering the next film, which is More American Graffiti. The film is called More American Graffiti. Oh. And it, let me tell you, I watched it as a younger person, and even as a younger person, I was like, this film fucking sucks. More American Graffiti is hot garbage. Hot garbage. Even George Lucas was like, that shit was hot garbage. <laughs> so instead, why don't we turn our attention next time to a different film? In two weeks is a film called Sullivan's Travels. So we'll be back with that. But until then, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. It's me, Will Magic. There's gonna be spoilers, man. That's scary good. There Will Be Spoilers is hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. It's produced each week by Matt Bazell. Our artwork is by Becca Knight. You can find her on Twitter at Becca the Knight. Our great music was produced and created by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can check him out all over the internet. You can always find us on Twitter at SpoilersCast. And you can find us on Patreon if you would like to support us for only $5 a month. Also at Patreon.com slash SpoilersCast. Our email continues to be SpoilersCast at gmail.com. So send us some complaints hate mail and maybe a compliment or two remember please subscribe to us on soundcloud itunes or stitcher and we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on itunes it really helps thank you so much i want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions stark realism the problems that confront the average man but with a little six a little but i don't want to stress it I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little sex in it. With a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with the world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street, with grim death gargling at you from every corner, with people slaughtered like sheep? Maybe they'd like to forget that. Then why do they hold this one over for a fifth week at the music hall? For the ushers? It died in Pittsburgh. Like a dog. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. If they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh.